I'd rather be in the house of the Lord laying on the steps than anywhere else. Well, welcome to Faith. Welcome to uh, our message series. This is our kickoff week for the uh, Gospel According to Mark. It's an eight-week uh, Gospel series as we uh, move towards Easter. Uh, and the Gospel of Mark is known as the earliest written Gospel account that we have of the life, the ministry, and the mission of Jesus. And Mark wastes absolutely no words uh, to get to the purpose of why he wrote the book. In the very first verse, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, So Mark's gospel was given uh, to uh, convince, to persuade those uh, listeners, both Jew and Gentile, about who Jesus is and to call people to follow him and to believe in him. That means that this book, while it's a most important book for the foundation of the Christian faith, it's a book that's written often to skeptics and uh, to outsiders and to those that might know who Jesus is and to follow him. Uh, So if you fall into any one of those categories, the Gospel of Mark is for you. Uh, You should know that Mark's a gospel account is written from the perspective of the life of the apostle Peter, that rock that Jesus said would he would build upon the or he would build the church upon. Uh, but Peter is also known as the probably one of the most flawed of the disciples, who uh, had this stellar uh, fall when he uh, denied Christ three times before he was crucified, and then even after Christ rose and ascended into heaven we find that the Apostle Peter fell into uh, some racist behavior in, uh, in Galatians where he had withdrawn from the table fellowship with other Gentile believers, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face. And so Peter, who gives this account of Christ, knows how messed up uh, he is in his own sinfulness, but he also knows how amazing God's grace is uh, to sinners. Uh, but Peter is is really using Mark as his writer for this gospel. And Mark, uh, also known as John Mark, was the uh, cousin of Barnabas. And uh, one of the stories of of John Mark was that he uh, had abandoned and deserted Paul at a very critical uh, moment in his first missionary journey in Acts 15. Uh, Appears that uh, somewhere along the way, Mark had caved into his fears and had abandoned uh, Paul in the mission. And then Paul said, I'm done with this little coward. Uh, I don't know. That's probably not exactly the words that he said. But Paul was definitely angry with Mark for his desertion. And there was a sharp dispute, it says. And, and, uh, but Barnabas uh, saw some, some promise in Mark, and he took Mark with him and and then uh, Paul took solace, and they split up. There is a reconciliation at the end of Paul's life where Mark is reunited, and, and uh, Paul esteems and values him very much. I spend this background with you on this, this gospel of Mark and about Peter so that you would know that the people that God most uses to forward his kingdom and to build his church are not sinless saints, but miserable failures and cowards, once deniers, once deserters of Christ, and even practicing racists. 
uh, just like a lot of you and I were and maybe sometimes still are. But as the Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so regardless of who you are or what you have done, the Gospel of Mark reminds us that there is hope for you and me. But the last thing that you should know is that this is the shortest account of all of the Gospels. It is focused on the actions and the personality of Jesus' life more than it is on the long teaching discourses. Here we find Peter's personality breaking through. Peter was captivated by the colorful, vivid, energized movements of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just an academic theologian. He was a teacher with feet. He was a man on mission. Uh, Jesus proved his identity and his words through his works and his deeds. And so there's lots of action. There's lots of immediately's in the book of Mark. Peter, through Mark, appears to be hurrying his readers to capture in the most kind of pushy, staccato manner, a string of compelling signs and wonders and miracles with powerful teaching of Jesus to present pound the glory of this breaking in of this extraordinary Jesus, the Son of God, into the ordinary lives to present and persuade that people that Jesus is the Son of God. I think the Gospel of Mark might be particularly attractive to ADHD kinds of people, which is another reason why I like him. So hold on to your seats. The Gospel of Mark. We'll start with verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Gal of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel of Mark uh, was written to reveal and to declare who Jesus was and is, the divine Son of God who comes with all authority to usher in the kingdom of God, and that he is the Son of Man who came as the suffering servant to die for sinners. But Mark was also written to compel sinners and readers and listeners to respond in faith to follow him and to follow him with an all-out trust and devotion. However, there is a major tendency uh, for believers and for professed 
Christians to lose touch with the radical nature of who Jesus is and also the radical call to be a follower of him. This can be observed in the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, where he was imprisoned for his nonviolent civil rights demonstrations in 1963. There he wrote an open letter to eight white clergymen who called, them, who called him an extremist and, he, and who wanted King to go home and stop the protest and let the movement of justice come in in its own time. And the Reverend Dr. King wrote that famous letter because he earnestly wanted those professed Christian ministers to see that the meaning of discipleship was at the heart of the African-American struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. One paragraph captivated me as we consider these opening words from the Gospel of Mark. Dr. King said this, There was a time when the church was very powerful, it was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were, a small, they were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too high, to, they were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiatorial, uh, the gladiatorial uh, contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak and ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. From Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. In this year of 2018, which marks the 50th year since the assassination of Dr. King, uh, there are many convocations, many con uh, celebrations to mark his life and his works for civil rights, but so many of his words still ring very true today. But what will help re-God intoxicate not only a weak and often ineffectual church, but would also capture the hearts and the minds and the lives of disbelievers and skeptics and seekers? Well, I believe that Mark presents to us this compelling gospel of Jesus Christ and his mission in the world. That is what Mark presents for us in these opening chapters uh, where Jesus calls people, calls us as his disciples to this compelling gospel. We see here the, uh, the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and the mission of the gospel that we might realign ourselves, that we might be re-intoxicated in God, uh, that we might follow Christ in his compelling gospel. 
And so it opens up in verse 9 through 13, where Jesus is, is uh, coming from Nazareth, which was a no, nobody's town of Galilee, and he was baptized in, in the Jordan by John, and he comes up out of the water, and uh, the heavens are torn open, it says, and this dove descends, and, he, and these words come from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now when you think about Jesus, this is, this is really the inauguration of his earthly ministry, his mission or launch. Uh, right before he goes into what we consider like the boot camp desert experience for 40 days in the wilderness, uh, Jesus uh, has this event that takes place. Uh, he's anointed or baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, and it wasn't like he read a book to prepare himself for this desert experience. It wasn't like he performed a bunch of exercises to get ready. It wasn't that he, he, he entered into some kind of diet, uh, it says. But what Jesus received was a voice from heaven calling, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And you think about that, that is the power of Jesus' ministry, uh, his connection with his Father. In those particular words, we find the affirmation of his identity. You are my son. He didn't say, you are uh, the suffering servant. Uh, you are, you know, the Messiah who's come to... Uh, he, didn't, he didn't use any of the other titles that he that could have been used to describe Jesus. He uses one title, one noun, to identify who Jesus is at the very core. You are my son. But he also declares something more. You are the son that I love, whom I love. And then there's an expression of his pleasure, of the Father's pleasure. With you, I am well pleased. Now you think about this. Jesus is getting ready to, uh, to go to prepare himself for his mission in the world. He's, uh, up until this point, there's a rather quiet 30-year, uh, you know, hardly anything spoken about Jesus' life up until this point. Uh, he was the son of a carpenter. That was his trade. But... At this juncture, right before he's launched, the very first thing that has, that has said to him are the words of his Father in heaven. I can't think of any greater, more encouraging and wonderful words to hear before he launches into this mission. You know, uh, the apostle, or Mark, who writes this gospel, says that he was uh, in the desert for 40 days and being tempted by by the devil, by Satan. And we find in the account of Matthew and Luke uh, particularly what those temptations were. You know, uh, the first temptation is that, you know, it's at the end of 40 days and Jesus is hungry. Well, the first temptation was turn those stones into bread, you know? And what was that temptation? It was the temptation that your father isn't going to provide for you. Your father will not take care of you. He will not sustain you. You need to take charge of yourself. You're, you're really an orphan, Jesus. You, 
you can't trust. God is not there for you. So turn these stones into bread. You have that power. The second temptation was he took him to the top of the pinnacle of the temple. And he, he told Jesus to, you know, cast yourself down because the scriptures say that the angels will, will carry you. The, the angels will protect you. And the, and the temptation there was you can't trust the Father to protect you. You cannot trust him. He will, not, he will not be there to be your fortress, to be your guard. He's going he's gonna to abandon you. And the third temptation was he takes him to the top of the mountain, and he looks out of over all the kingdoms, and he says, you know, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And what the temp- temptation was is that Jesus, your father's not going to honor you. God doesn't care about your glory. Bow down, I'll give you the glory. That was those temptations, but at the core of all those temptations were, was this. Am I loved? Am I a beloved son? That was the core of the temptation. And what God the Father does and what is heard from heaven is that you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so what we find is this reinforcement of Jesus' sonship and his call to the mission, how vital it is. Uh, And we find that before Jesus goes to the cross at the transfiguration, there's another reinforcement. Uh, Those same words are shouted from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. And we find the angels were ministering to him. That's an interesting thing too, isn't it? The angels, and he was with the wild animals. I wonder what that experience was like. You know, Jesus comes, we find that in the end times that the lion and the lamb are going to be at peace. They're not going to be, like the lion's not going to tear the lamb up. They're going to all be at peace. And here's the king, the son of God, who has come to the earth. And, and somewhere in the wilderness, I can imagine that all the animals were coming around Jesus. And they were all happy to see him because he was the promise that he was going to restore peace among the earth. He was going to bring the creation back to its original state. But they had angels attending him, the ministering spirits. How many angels? We don't know how many angels. Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels at my command before he went to the cross, and the legion is 5,000. So there's like 60,000 angels that could have been called. And we, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being equipped for the mission. But at the core of it is that he knows that he is a beloved son of the Father, and that was what gave him power to go forward. But we see that Jesus, he enters the scene, and uh, we see this gospel mission, and he's, uh, John is arrested, and Jesus comes to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now we see in Matthew's account that he opens up with a big genealogy that goes back to Abraham. You know, Matthew is about uh, convincing the Jewish nation that Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. And so he wants to make sure of that. And then we find in Luke's account, which he has a kind of a missional apologetic to the Gentiles, that he has all the precise details and all of the miracles established uh, to give an orderly account about the certainty of Jesus Christ. And John is about looking at the divine son all the way back from creation and the beginning of creation. Uh, But Mark is launching. He doesn't waste any words. He just jumps straight into it. This is about 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and that's what he starts off with. This is his, these are his words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Uh, when you think about the word gospel, uh, many of us might think about, well, it's a message. You know, there, it's about words spoken, and there's some truth to that. Or some might think, well, the gospel is a book. You know, we have the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But... Uh, in the original, it meant neither one of those concepts. It represented good news. Uh, it represented the announcement that some significant, life-altering, world-changing event has taken place, like the birth of the Roman Emperor Augustus. There's an essential historicity to the Christian message. In Hebrews, it means to announce the good news. It means the inbreaking of God's kingly rule, the advent of his salvation, and his vindication. Uh, the reason the gospel event is world-changing is it because it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel is the good news that Jesus preached, and at the heart of the good news was Jesus himself. Jesus is the messenger, and he is the message of the good news. And so Jesus is saying that the reign of God has broken into the earth. The long-awaited king has arrived. God has invaded human history through his son Jesus to bring redemption to all those who believe and judgment to those who reject him. And such in-breaking in calls for a decisive, urgent response. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is calling people who hear this to a radical decision a radical decision. Jesus is not telling people, hey, listen, go home and explore your options. Jesus is not playing. One writer says he stands as God's final word of address to man in man's last hours. And so he calls people to repent, uh, to turn, uh, to change their minds. J.I. Packer says about repentance, repentance means changing one's minds so that one's views, values, goals, and the ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical. It's inward, it's outward. It's mind and judgment. It's will and affections. It's behavior and lifestyle. It's motives and purposes. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Uh, Thomas Watson, he was a Puritan, and he said, it's seeing your sin... It's sorrowing over your sin. It's confessing your sins, being ashamed of your sin, hating sin, and turning from sin. Uh, when, when I was uh, 15, I had gone on a Young Life weekend. This was like a youth ministry and uh, came alongside high schools. And, and I remember that weekend that I, you know, committed my life to Christ. And, and I was compelled that I was going to be a follower of Jesus. I was in a... Uh, an unhealthy relationship with a young girl that uh, I was struggling with. And I had heard in my heart Jesus say, Craig, you can either have a relationship with this girl or you can follow, or you can have a relationship with me, but you can't have both. I just felt that was that clear. And Jesus was giving me a line that I can't, I might, I might, be saved, but I am not a follower. I am not in relationship with him. I can't have fellowship with him if I'm in this kind of relationship. And so uh, I, if 
by God's grace, was able to break that off, and I felt the freedom and the liberation that I could fully follow Christ with my affections and my heart. Repentance is turning from your sins, but it's not just turning from your sins. He doesn't just say repent. He doesn't say just turn from your sins. He says repent and believe the good news. That is so important. It's both those things. It's turning from your sins, but it's turning uh, towards Christ. It's believing in Christ. I think one of the things that uh, I appreciate about uh, Jesus' encounter or Peter's encounter with Jesus, uh, you know, we heard the, we read the account from Luke, Luke 5, where Peter, you know, is uh, out in the water with his other uh, fishermen, and Jesus is preaching on the shore, and he tells them to cast out his net, and of course they do, and they got this huge catch that's breaking their nets, that's filling up both boats, they're sinking. Peter comes to realize that this isn't just another teacher, he's not just a prophet, he is the Son of God. And he, in the face of that, he comes to grips with his sinfulness. And the first words, when he comes to that reality, says, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And so what did Jesus do? Well, let's talk about that, Peter. Let's, you know, you really are a sinner. You've got so much sin. You need to be thinking more about the sin that you've committed. And, uh, you know, what are the sins that you need to confess to me right now? How much do we see of Jesus focusing on Peter's sin? Nothing. <laughs> he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You know, Jesus doesn't focus on the sins of repentant sinners. You know what he does? He embraces them. And he says, here, grab a shovel. Or, no, here, here's the fishing rod. Or, you know, let's move into mission. Let's make disciples. You know, Jesus embraces repenting sinners. And we see that here. Believe the good news. So Jesus never focuses on people's sins, but he focuses on the call of discipleship. And so we see this calling. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Uh, you know, this is a unique uh, difference of the way uh, rabbis would usually gather followers or students. Often in that, in that age, a rabbi, a student, a prospective student, would actually approach a rabbi and say, I've been, I've been checking in on you, I've been listening to your teaching, I've been reading your scrolls or your books, and, and I'm interested in being one of your disciples. Can I? And so that's usually how it took place. The students would ask. But Jesus changes the whole form of how he goes after disciples. He doesn't wait for students or prospective students and followers to come to follow him. He goes after them. He summons them. He commands them. Uh, he is uh, a king who is recruiting an army. <laughs> uh, when uh, George Whitfield said this, when Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, he was given a declaration of war. This was the announcement of Christ's sovereign conquest of the whole earth. He expresses here his intention to claim every inch of it for the glory of God. And Jesus said, the triumphant commander-in-chief caused the whole church to abandon our civilian passive status and engage in the battle for lost people to go and make disciples. 
And he says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so we see this radical call of discipleship. We see this decisive following, and they left their nets immediately, without delay, straightway. Uh, they abandoned, they burned their bridges, they left their nets. Uh, they followed, they made a decisive break with their former way of life. Now, Jesus doesn't always call people to quit their jobs and to move from their physical location, but he is asking that there is no competition for following him. He wants absolute allegiance. And so, uh, it's interesting, my, I have two, older, two brothers, one older, one younger, my dad, uh, we grew up, my dad was, uh, first he was a master plumber, had his company. We grew up in the construction trades, and my dad moved into building and development. And so I kind of grew up in all that, and it was the sense that we were going to uh, take over his construction company and, and his development company. And, and that would have been a, a wonderful thing. And, but soon after, my brother, my brother went to study business and then I went to Virginia Tech to study architecture and building construction, and, and we were going to you know, finish and, and, and partner together and take over my dad's company. And then all of a sudden, my brother goes off to seminary as soon as he graduates. And a couple years after that, I ended up going, and, well, maybe there's hope for my younger brother, Chris, you know. And uh, he, he became a civil engineer, and, he's, and then all of a sudden, like five years after that, he ends up going to seminary. So somehow my parents... They uh, birthed three guys in gospel ministry, and people asked them, well, how did this happen? What did you do? And uh, they said, we, you know, we just loved them, and uh, we just loved them. You know, we don't know. This is God's thing. And it was a God thing, but my parents loved us, and they basically encouraged us to follow God, and that was a great uh, blessing to us. But what we see here is that there should be no, there's no competition uh, to following Jesus. Uh, he has claimed a radical call on our lives, and he demands to be the center, and, uh, and so he ex ex expects complete devotion to following him. You know, uh, as I'm moving into this, uh, and as our church is kind of in transition, and uh, we're praying for the next pastor to come, and I'm thinking about this next chapter with uh, Balm, Baltimore Antioch Leadership Movement, uh, I, I'm, I, I often will say, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, and I've had uh, people that know me, that know my construction background, that are actually offering me to just go into construction, and there's needs for construction managers. And, and I know if I would do that, I'd have a much more comfortable life <laughs> in, in many ways. But... I don't have any peace that that's what God's calling me to do. It would be okay if that was what he's calling me to do. But I think what God's calling me to do is to help use this season of my life uh, to help build cross-cultural leaders for a multi-ethnic urbanized society and, uh, and work with Stan and, and others uh, to see that uh, transpire. When God calls you, he will equip you, and he will supply what you need, and that is what I have seen over and over again. Uh, but to do that, you need that power, don't you? If you're going to follow Jesus in this kind of radical call, and he expects a no, no other competition, he expects total devotion, 
uh, he, he expects repentance. And it's not just a one-time deal. He expects a deal of repentance. And that's, a big, that's a big ask, isn't it? How do you keep doing that? You need a big God. You need a big gospel. And so we need to be a people that can get away and hear the voice of our Father and to hear that voice that says, you're my beloved son whom I love. I am delighted with you. You are my pleasure. You're my special, you're my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. We need to be able to get away to hear that voice and to be able to hear that regularly. That needs to be the biggest voice in our hearts because there's so many other voices that says, you're alone. You're all alone. Nobody loves you. You're an orphan. Nobody's going to protect you, provide for you, give you the glory. But God the Father is shouting through his son because you trust in him that you're his beloved son, you're his beloved daughter. He loves you with an everlasting love. Well, today, uh, this evening, uh, much of the nation will be captivated by the Super Bowl as uh, five-time Super Bowl champions, the New, New England Patriots, compete against the never-having-won-a-Super-Bowl underdogs, uh, but with the hopeful, enthusiastic, most intimidating fans, the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, yesterday, an opinion piece in the New York Times titled Confessions of an Unapologetic Patriots Fan, uh, Mark Edmondson uh, wrote, and he says, while not living anywhere near the New England, he shares why he is such a full-out ardent fan, regardless of all the neg negativity around the team. And then he says, the key reason is that they win all the time. <laughs> Which is another reason why people hate them, he says. Some, he says, want a, school, a nice schoolyard, take turns winning, play nice kind of sportsmanship. But the Patriots, he says, don't play nice. They crush you. He also says they have been by far the smartest team, being what appears to be utterly defeated at halftime, and somehow they find a way to pulverize their opponents in the second half, leaving heads spinning. He says he likes the Patriots because of their dominance. Uh, he likes empires. He likes dynasties. He says any team can ring the bell once, but to smack the gong again and again, that's truly something. <laughs> But he says, most people resent sports dynasties because they prefer up-and-comers, and they pull for the underdog. Uh, they want David to beat Goliath. They want to think of a world of promise before them. Now, I don't know who you hope to win tonight. Since the Ravens aren't playing, I'm actually rooting for the Eagles. <laughs> but my hat goes off to the Patriots, who've, who've had such an enduring run. But you know, all the great dramas and all the great stories and all the great competitions and the battles of the world all have their echoes in the greatest story of all stories. And it's about a baby born in poverty. It's about a baby born under the shameful rumor of being illegitimate, who was born uh, from a, and came from a nobody town of Nazareth, whose occupation was that of a blue-collar carpenter, who was anointed not by the powerful elites of the famous rabbinic universities, 
but by some esoteric, seemingly crazy, camel-skin, locust-eating prophet man in the wilderness. But who, upon his inaugurating baptism, announced and proclaimed his arriving kingdom, who cast out demons, who healed the lepers, who made the lame walk, who gave sight to the blind, he raised the dead, and proclaimed good news to the poor, and who astounded the religious professors with his learning and authority, and who captured the allegiance of the multitudes. But this Jesus was no ordinary king. He did not rule by ruthless intimidation. He led by humble servanthood. He did not win by crushing his enemies. He won by being crushed for his enemies. He won by dying for his enemies, that his enemies would become not just friends, but brothers and sisters. They would become beloved sons and daughters, that his enemies would become his family. I really don't care who you're rooting for tonight, but I do care about whether you have attached your heart and your life to the king who won the most important battle of the ages, whose kingdom has come and continues to advance and whose kingdom will last forever. And this king, he doesn't come on the scene and say, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. He doesn't say all roads lead to the same destiny. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He doesn't come up to prospective disciples and ask them, would you like to follow me? Would you consider following me? Would you go home and think about it? <laughs> no, he summons. He commands those he calls, come, follow me. And he cast a bigger vision and a greater vision than they could ever imagine. I will make you fishers of men. Do you hear him calling you? This Jesus King is still calling. Jesus doesn't come for perfect saints. He comes after broken sinners. He comes after people weak in faith who are seeking a strong Savior. You know, he knows that we struggle believing this. He knows that we struggle believing that there's such a king who would descend to this earth and who would raise up unworthy sinners. He knows that we, it's just hard for us to wrap our heads and actually believe that. And so he gives us this meal as a concrete sign of his undying love for us. Uh, and that's what this meal represents, that Jesus came, he lived the life that, that we should have lived, and he died a death that we should have died because we have a Father in heaven, we have a Savior, we have a Holy Spirit who loves us to the very depths, to raise us to the very heights. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. Who's this supper for? It's for anyone who has confessed their sins, uh, who, seek, who are believing in Christ for their Savior. Uh, if you're here today, uh, he doesn't expect uh, perfect repentance or perfect faith. Uh, he takes weak faith. He takes a mustard seed of faith because it's not the basis upon our faith that saves us. It's based on our Savior who saves us the object of our faith. And so this table is for anyone who seeks humble repentance and a faith in Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow him in his church. If you're here today and you believe in him, you're welcome. If you haven't, I ask you to 
let this cup pass and this bread pass that you would be able to come and partake of this as a son or daughter and we would be would love to walk with you through that so the night that, on the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you eat of this in remembrance of me let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you that you give us uh, these signs and seals of your undying love we we are people that forget, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around the fact that you love us with such a love that you come after us, that you shout from heaven the same words uh, that you gave to your only beloved perfect son. But Lord, this meal reminds us that we have that same love. And so God, help us to live in that, and we uh, commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, eat in remembrance of me.